So we're looking in James chapter 2 this evening. James chapter 2. I have two titles. The first title is The Sin of Favoritism, or you could call it Gospel Community. But I will talk about both because they, they are related. I'm interested in Gospel Community. I think you've heard me say before that in our church in Philly, we have the Lord's Table every week. And it's, for me, the highlight of the service to see everyone get up out of their seat and come down. And we have a loaf of bread that somebody's holding and they take a piece of that bread and they take the cup. But as I watch them stream down, I watch the diversity, the variety of people, you know, a Ph.D. and a high school dropout, uh, a drug counselor and a guy who's gone to the methadone clinic every week. As somebody who's struggling to get by on welfare and somebody who's you know, living very well, uh, black and white, rich and poor, uh, old and young. Just the diversity of people who normally in our world would not be together. But as we stream to the table, we're reminded that there's really only one thing that can bring people together, and that's Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we hear a lot about racism today, and you know, racism is an evil that no Christian should ever be guilty of. But you don't defeat racism by fighting racism. You defeat racism by living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what James is essentially calling this church to do. He's calling them to have a faith that's genuine, that looks different in the world that they're living in. Uh, because this faith is going to treat people equally. It's going to accept people equally. It's not going to make the kinds of distinctions that that we like to make. And, you know, I, I realize more and more as a believer how full I am of prejudice in so many ways that I, I can judge people because they don't know how to park or they don't know how to drive or uh, they don't know which side of the sidewalk to walk on or... Uh, but, you know, every time I'm doing that, I'm not living out the gospel. I'm back under legalism, and I like to think that I've escaped legalism and that I understand grace, but you and I know that legalism gets so deeply rooted in our hearts that even though we've begun to experience grace, it's, it's always there, and it comes out in ugly ways, and one of the ways it comes out is in discrimination and prejudice and playing favorites. So that's what James is going to address in our text. Let me read it, James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing comes also in. 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography, he tells a story of his uh, student days when he was actually reading the Gospels uh, very seriously and considered converting to Christianity. He believed, this is Mahatma Gandhi, believed that the teachings of Jesus, in the teachings of Jesus, you could find the solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. So one day, Mahatma Gandhi decided to attend service at a nearby church and to talk to the preacher about becoming a Christian. When he entered the sanctuary, the usher refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church and never returned. He said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And so he did. Christians do have caste systems. Some are explicit, some are less explicit, but they're real. We make distinctions. We become judges with evil thoughts. And James is telling these people that if their faith is genuine, then their faith should be affecting the way they look at, they speak to, they deal with people, other people, people especially that aren't just like them. That favoritism is a sin. It is not reflective of the gospel of the grace of God at work in your life. I grew up with racism in me. I didn't get it from my parents. They were godly Christians who loved people and loved everyone. Uh, I got it just from living in a neighborhood in Philly and living in the 60s and the whole racial thing that was going on then and 
Uh, I hated blacks, and I'm sure that they hated me as much. But getting saved began to change that. I thought at one point that pretty much I was beyond that until one day I was riding my motorcycle through uh, a neighborhood outside of Philadelphia and it had happened to be an Afro-American neighborhood and I was just enjoying my day riding down the street and all of a sudden I heard a bunch of kids yelling. And they came running at me. They were little, you know, eight, ten-year-olds with water pistols. And they got me. But under my breath, I said something that showed how evil my heart could be. And I pulled over and repented and asked God to forgive me. But I realized that as much as we grow in grace, that this legalism, this idea that somehow I'm more acceptable to God to others for some reason within myself is hard to root out that I'm better than someone else. And all of that thinking is contrary to grace. And yet our, our churches are full of it. Often people would ask us when we were planning Grace Church of Philly, you know, what is your target group? What's the demographic you're trying to to reach? Because in church growth sociology, uh, the idea is that if you want to have a a church that grows fast, more quickly, then you always try to have a homogeneous church. People that look like each other and uh, talk like each other and have the same likes in life and... We, we sort of said from the beginning, and we still hold to this, uh, we have no target group. We want to reach people, the people who are in our neighborhood, whoever those people are. And right now, I think not too long ago, uh, somebody counted people from 15 different countries sitting in, in Grace Church. For me, it would be a sin, I've often said to our church, I will repent before God someday if our church ends up looking like me, especially in a neighborhood that doesn't look like me. You know, if you're in a demographic where all there are are white, young professionals, then that's what your church is going to look like. But if you're in a city, especially, and the gospel is really affecting the way you think and feel toward people, then your dinner table begins to look different. And your friendships begin to look different. And your worship, your church begins to look different. So James is simply saying this, an evidence of genuine faith is the growing absence of favoritism or the growing absence of prejudice. It's never fully erased because sin is always a part of us until the resurrection. But you and I need to be growing with the absence of favoritism toward others in our life. And he offers a number of arguments. Let me give them to you tonight from our text. The first is this, and it's 
Really, nothing else needs to be said, though I will say more. Favoritism is absolutely incompatible with being a believer in Christ. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's something incompatible with what you're doing in your church. And the language of the text makes it clear that this was going on in this assembly. They were actually doing this. Rich man sit here, poor man sit there. And I realize that the issues aren't always riches and poverty. Sometimes it's race, sometimes it's age. You know, there are other things that divide. Sometimes it's politics. There's other things that divide people in society. But here it was, rich and poor. And they were actually judging people by external factors that somehow the gospel was lost. And the assumption here is that these are probably other Christians. They're fellow Christians. They're brothers and sisters who just aren't just like them. The word partiality, to show no partiality, means to receive someone by their face. Literally, it means to receive by face, which simply is saying you're judging somebody by their external factors. You look at how they dress, how they smell, how they talk, what race they are, what accent they have. And already you're developing a standard of whether or not you're going to accept them or reject them. And James says this is contrary to who you are as a believer in Christ. You hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Lord. You are those who have been invited into The glory that the Trinity shared in eternity past. That glory of happiness and love. And in Christ you've been invited into that. And you are called to invite others into that. What what brings us together is the bread and the wine. What they represent. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's simply saying don't receive somebody by external factors. You've got a PhD. I'm going to spend more time talking to you. Oh, you've got a good job. You work for IBM. Maybe you're going to give a little bit more to the church. I'm going to invest a little bit more time in you. Don't show partiality. Don't receive a man by his face. It's interesting that uh, the only other times this word is used It's used of God. God does not receive people by external factors. God is oblivious to rich or poor, black or white, old or young. What race, what language, what country you come from. And I think James's concern, I think it's important to keep this in mind, that James's concern is not so much changing the society that's out there. 
Now, I would love to see that change, but only the gospel can really bring about a restored humanity. And I believe if we work hard at that, that we can affect the world around us. But I have no utopian idea that somehow I can get non-believers to come together on some external, fragile basis and really have unity. And that's not what James is fighting for. James is fighting for the goal of a transformed new society within the old society. That people walk in and they see people sharing life together that they would not normally see sharing life together. I think I may have mentioned this in a message I preached before, but uh, one night at one of our small group studies in our home, we had a couple of Afro-American women that are probably in their 50s or 60s. Shared dinner with us, shared the Bible study together. And then talking to them later to find out that was the first time in their entire life they had ever eaten dinner in a white family's home. And since then, I've talked to pastors and elders of uh, Afro-American churches in our neighborhood And I found that's almost universal. And I said, what what we need is a, a, a movement of Christian hospitality. We want to affect the world we're in. You won't do it by lying down the street and protesting or stopping traffic. or That's not how you'll change the world. Change the world by inviting someone not like you into your life, to your dinner table. I remember asking one, one elder, uh, Afro-American elder, if he had ever, ever eaten at a, in a white man's home. And he said, you know, we eat lunch together at work. But sitting at somebody's table, that's really intimate. That's deeply personal. And I said, exactly. And that's what Christ calls us to. Don't show partiality. Partiality. We expect sinners to sin. But James expects people who hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. He expects them to not judge people by external factors. General Robert E. Lee, as you know, was a Confederate general. And though he was a Confederate general, he was a devout follower of Christ. It is said that soon after the American Civil War, he visited a church in Washington, D.C. And during the communion service, he knelt beside a black man and prayed with him. An onlooker said to him later, how could you do that? And Lee replied, my friend, all ground is level ground beneath the cross of Christ. Now let me say as sort of an aside that when James is saying you shouldn't treat the poor 
the way you, you are. He's not at the same time saying, treat the rich that way. Because the world we're, we're, we live in today wants us to believe that you know there's something inherently evil about everyone who has rich and some riches, and we have to take it from them and treat them differently. And James is James isn't saying that. There was nothing wrong with saying to a rich visitor, "Sit here." But there's something desperately wrong if you're not saying that to every visitor. That you're treating them special, you're treating them with love, you're treating them with, with, with kindness. So he's not saying reverse it and treat the rich wrongly. Secondly, our text is telling us that favoritism is rooted in a way of thinking that has not been transformed by the grace of God. The end of verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians 13. I believe you guys preached through that at one, one point. But one of my favorite parts of the description of love is the part that says love does not boast and love does not envy. And they're sort of paired together because they're talking about the same thing in different ways. When you're boasting, you are elevating yourself. You're making that distinction. When you're envying, you're elevating someone else. You're diminishing yourself when you're envying. And Paul says love doesn't do that. Now, he doesn't tell us right there why love doesn't do that. But we know why Christian love does not need to boast or envy. Because we're secure in our identity in Jesus Christ. I can appreciate that others are better than me in many things. That they're better looking, they're stronger, they drive nicer cars, they have bigger houses, they have better incomes, they have have better retirement. I can appreciate that as God's blessing, God's gift to them. I don't have to envy that because I have the greatest treasure. I know who I am in Christ. I'm not defined by what I have or don't have or can do or can't do. And I can look at others that, or I should look at others that maybe don't have externally what I have. And I need to be grateful to God for what I have. And then I need to see if I can, there's a way I can help others move along in life somehow, to share what I have, to encourage them. But love does not need to elevate oneself. It does not make distinctions. I wish I could have that kind of perfect love. I don't because my mind is forever making distinctions. And I'm Asking God to forgive me. Help me not, not, not to do that. Help me to treat people with gospel grace just like you have treated me. Because James says, when you make distinctions, you are a judge. 
with evil thoughts. That even though you say you believe the gospel, you believe grace, you believe that God is so bountiful and generous that his offer to save can really transform and redeem anyone. That's the kind of power he has. But you rather live under the law. You would rather judge people and somehow deem them not worthy or out of the reach of God's grace. Now, we don't think all this through in our mind when we're doing that, but James is saying this is what's, what's happening. You're no longer living out the gospel. You've become a judge, and you're not the judge. He'll later say the judge is standing before the door. He's on the threshold. He's ready to come back. He is coming back, but you're not the judge. You're to extend to people the kind of grace that God has extended to you. I remember when I pastored here in Brooklyn that we were trying to take a church that was largely ethnically based. And we were beginning to dream of what it would look like to have a a church of all nations that people from Albania and Russia and China and the Middle East and and Puerto Rico and the Dominican and people from all nations would be welcome and could actually worship together. I remember one man getting up and he said, if we do all those things you want us to do, then we will get too many of those kind of people and they'll want to take over the church. And my question was, what do you mean by those kind of people? But I knew what he meant. I knew that grace had not so affected his heart yet to where he could extend that grace openly to others. He was still legalistic, though he wouldn't have called himself legalistic, but he still was a judge and was making distinctions and thinking that in some ways I'm superior. I have more of a right to the blessing and grace of God than those people do. And unfortunately, in another church I pastored, I had the a similar experience when I wanted to bring on an Afro-American friend of mine as an intern, as a sort of assistant pastor. And we had to argue and read books and argue some more for one year before I finally won. And I must say I won the battle but ultimately lost the war uh, in that church because that's not what they really Wanted. Well, if we bring those people in, they'll want their kind of music. So, is it music that honors Christ and honors the gospel and rejoices in the triune God? Then what's wrong with mixing things up a little bit? 
So why do we have, why do we show favoritism? James says our thinking has not been transformed by the grace of God. We're saved, but our mindset is still the mindset of the world. Where we need to get is where Paul indicates that he got in his life. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 16, Paul said this. He said, for the love of God, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. That if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. He says, even though I judged Christ by external standards before, I don't know him that way any longer. Because Paul judged him as one that was worthy of being stoned, worthy of being crucified. And Christians were worthy of being stoned. But grace transformed him. He says, we, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. And I pray, God, help me, help our church, help us get there. Paul also indicates thirdly that favoritism conflicts with God's evangelistic strategy. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of all the kingdom of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? God is saving poor people. God's interested in saving poor people. Apparently, Jesus Christ died for poor people. These poor people that you want to disenfranchise. These poor people that you want to disrespect and dehumanize in some way. That God has chosen them. And it's a very specific Greek word. It means literally he chose them for himself. To love them, to show grace to them, to bless them. God did this for poor people and these poor people that God has chosen for himself come into your church. And you ignore them because they're not like you. There's something wrong with that. That was the issue there, the riches and poverty, but... Here the issue is much more race, economics, politics, the list goes on. And the evidence, I think, that prejudice exists in all of our hearts is probably seen at our dinner tables. Like my black elder friend said, that's a very intimate, personal spot. Who do you invite into that spot? A brother in Christ? A sister in Christ? Who in in earthly terms has nothing in common with you, but in eternal terms has everything in common with you.
apparently God in his evangelistic strategy, strategy, he often focuses on people that are, by societal standards, they would seem to be the least likely to be saved. It's like Corey Ten Boom tells the story of her conversation with one of her Nazi guards uh, who couldn't get over how she gave her time to what he called nitwits, you know, people that didn't have it all together mentally in his mind. Why would you waste your time with nitwits? And her reply was, I suspect, as I know the God of the Bible, that his love and concern is as much for a nitwit as it is for a PhD and as it is for a lieutenant in the Nazi army. That's the God I know. He doesn't make these distinctions. God's interested in reaching people and often the people that we are less likely to invite to our our, our dinner table. He has chosen the poor man for himself to love him and bless him and pour himself out to him. And so I need to ask myself the question, do I have the right to shut out of my life or out of my church or to diminish in any way? People whom God gave his son to rescue, to save. James is essentially saying, you're obviously not interested in the advancement of the gospel if you're not interested in getting rid of of prejudice. Because God is reaching people that you're not interested in reaching. A fourth thing in our text. James tells us that favoritism violates the law of love, but not only the the law of love, it violates clearly the sixth commandment. Listen again to what he says. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, and this is the royal law, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors for whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Well, the royal law is the law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's simple doesn't matter whether he's black or whether he's white or whether he's rich or whether he's poor or whether he's educated or what country he came from. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the royal law. Later he calls it the law of liberty. It's the law that sets you free because it's a law that's embedded in your heart by the grace of God. It's the law of liberty. But notice he talks about two commandments. And I imagine that as he's saying, you know, the law says do not commit adultery. People that are sitting there whom he's indicting would say, would sort of sit up straight and throw their shoulders back and say, I don't do that. And then he says, and the law also says, 
do not murder. And they might be tempted to say, I don't do that. But James is essentially saying, this is the commandment you're breaking. You're breaking. Oh, you pride yourself in being sexually pure, but you are killing people. Because, you know, Jesus, when he took the law of Moses, he didn't just take it for its external adherence. Jesus said, don't commit adultery, don't commit the external act, but he went deeper. He said, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. You don't have to consummate the, the worst act to be guilty of what that commandment forbids. But he does the same thing with murder. He says, if you don't love your brother, you're a murderer. He says, if you're angry with your brother and you call him a fool, you're a murderer. What Jesus is saying is essentially anything that diminishes the value of another human being. That you diminish their life. You don't have to kill them. All you need to do is hate them, talk bad about them, mistreat them, shun them, mock them, tell jokes about them. You're killing them, Jesus said. And by the grace of God, you've been brought into union with Christ and the spirit of this God of love has entered your heart and he is pouring forth the love of God through you. There's no excuse for this. You're a lawbreaker. If you could state the sixth commandment or many of the commandments positively, you would simply say, instead of saying don't murder, you would say, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't commit adultery. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't steal. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what we're called to, to live out the law of love. Technically, we're not under the law. But because the Spirit of God lives in us, the law is holy and just and good. It's reflective of God's character. He writes it in his heart. That's what the new covenant does. He writes this. So there's something about me by nature that comes from within that says I should love my neighbor as myself. But if I'm practicing favoritism, then I'm breaking the law. I remember while living here in Brooklyn, a fine Christian couple asked me one day, they said they have an apartment for rent and if I could send somebody to them that would be good, a, a, a good tenant. So I sent to them a uh, 
Pakistani couple that had been coming to church, Christian couple. She'd been saved out of Islam and and uh, they didn't get the apartment. Later, the couple told me, please don't send any more dark-skinned people again. Well, that's not only illegal, and it's not only immoral. It is so contrary to the gospel of grace. So contrary. This is your brother and sister in Christ. So James ends our text with some pretty severe words. Favoritism incurs judgment without mercy. He said, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under that law of liberty. Again, the law of liberty is the same as the law of love. If you're a believer, then God has written into your heart. It's not some external law that's compelling you to do this. This is who you are by new creation. You can do this. You may not do it perfectly, but you can do this. And there's no excuse when we don't do it. We repent when we don't do it because this is who we are in Christ. But he says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now, as I read that statement, I understand that if I were to draw a continuum, a line at one end, I would have no mercy. At the other end, I would have all mercy. And in between, I would have varying degrees of mixed mercy. No mercy. If you have no mercy, I mean, you are just a hateful, prejudiced person. You're not a believer, James is saying. You're in danger. You are not a believer. Don't say you're a Christian. When out of your mouth is coming, I hate these kind of people. You'll have judgment without mercy if you have no mercy. On the other end, there's all mercy, perfect mercy. None of us are there. We will be someday, but we're not there. If you're a believer in Christ, you're somewhere in between, hopefully moving more toward becoming merciful. As Jesus said, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Be merciful. Grow in mercy. We sang about God's mercies being new every morning. And they are. You know, every day I wake up. I wake up because God's been merciful to me, a sinner in Jesus Christ. There's never a day in my life that on my own merits I could stand before God and say, God, I have perfectly fulfilled the law, the righteousness of the law that you require. Accept me on my merits. No, every day I stand before God as one who has failed to live live out that law. But I claim Jesus who perfectly lived the life that I failed to live. And then he died the death that I deserved to die because of my failure so I can have life. But every day I wake up as one who is mercy. And it's because I know mercy and I experience mercy and I love mercy and I value mercy that I can grow in being merciful. 
But we don't grow in being merciful when we become more self-righteous. When we think that we've now become good as Christians and now there's something about me and what I do and what I'm learning that makes me more attractive to God or more acceptable to God that on my own merits, God should love me. Now, when you become self-righteous, you will become unmerciful and judgmental. But when the cry of your life is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner in Jesus Christ. God, thank you for your mercy. Then as he says, mercy always triumphs over judgment. They can't live together. If you're living in mercy, enjoying mercy, loving mercy, if the gospel is growing in your affections every day, if Christ is becoming more deeply the love of your life, if the greatness of your sin is even more clear so that the wonder of the gospel is even bigger and bigger, then judgment can't live in that context where someone is living and loving the mercy of God. That'll change any church. It will change any marriage. It'll change any relationship. It'll change the way you look at your neighbors. It'll change the way you look at your enemies. When you love and live in the mercy of God and value it and appreciate it. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, You've invited us to share and enjoy the glory of the Trinity, your infinite perfections. We begin to taste and as we sang, we're satisfied when we drink of Jesus and we drink of the water of life that the Spirit of God Brings, us, brings to us. Father, forgive us for being forgetful of your grace. Forgive us for becoming self-righteous and to think that there's something that's superior or more deserving about us. Forgive us for diminishing your grace by exalting our own goodness for stealing glory from Jesus and his great salvation by thinking that somehow we are saving ourselves be merciful to us help us to grow in that mercy to love that mercy to live in it to extend it to others May Sonship Ministries be a house of mercy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.